going to read the whole chapter and try to cover the whole chapter. It's a, it's a little bit longer reading, so hear now the word of the Lord this morning. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help, your blessing to digest and be nourished by and understand your word. So Lord, grant us wisdom, grant us insight, help our eyes to see reality for what it really is, and help us to live in light of the wisdom 
and insight of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. History is filled with illustrations that prove the proverb, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We can think of famous biblical examples of this. One moment you have a mighty warrior named Goliath standing before a terrified army shouting insults at them and mocking their God. And in the next moment, his slain head is being held up by a small shepherd boy named David. Or one moment, a great and mighty king like Nebuchadnezzar is standing on the roof of his house overlooking his kingdom and saying to himself, how my might and my glory have built up this wonderful kingdom. And then the next moment, he is living like the ox in the field, eating grass. He's driven among men, he's driven from among men and he's got the dew of heaven on his hair and his uh, hair is as long as eagle's feathers and his his uh, nails are like bird's claws and he's humbled to the dust like a beast. Or you can think of probably the most famous example in history is an engineering example of this proverb. Think of the Titanic. Before the maiden voyage of the Titanic, an article was published in the newspaper that described all the innovation and design and wonders of this architectural masterpiece. And it labeled it practically unsinkable. Well, they found that the emphasis was on the word practically because the New York office of the, the ship company, the White Star Line, was informed that, that, that the Titanic was in trouble. And when it got that information, the vice president of the company issued this statement. We place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe that this boat is unsinkable. By the time that that statement was spoken, guess where the Titanic was? It was at the bottom of the ocean. Well, then there are famous examples of this proverb in the history of civilizations. The Roman Empire was one of the most expansive, the most powerful, the most influential civilizations in history. And yet, historians argue that the Roman Empire had so overextended its reach economically, politically, and militarily that it was its own undoing. In other words, it had stretched itself so thin by expanding its rule so far that it could not sustain itself. Its vastness actually became its undoing, or in other words, its pride led to its downfall. Well, we can add to that list of examples the fall of the great city Babylon that John has just described to us in Revelation 18. In fact, I would argue that John intends us not just to add this to the list of uh, other examples of pride coming before destruction, but John intends us to see what he describes in Revelation 18 as the kind of culmination, the supreme and ultimate example of something where pride leads to destruction. Because as you look through this chapter, you can hear the pride and pomp of Babylon. It's impossible to miss. Look at verse seven with me. In verse seven, you can hear the practically unsinkable type of press release regarding Babylon. It says, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. In other words, I'm unsinkable. I'm indestructible. No one can touch me. And yet her pride made her so delusional that she thought she was indestructible and yet it led to her destruction. And then five times in this chapter, as everyone comes to lament Babylon, they give it the nickname, the great city. That was its nickname. Look at verse 18, for example, Revelation 18. And the merchants cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? So that the tone of that statement is one of disbelief. It's people looking at something that they thought was unsinkable, indestructible, and saying, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. It's an ash heap of ruins. It reminds me of 
what the Soviet-Russia hockey team, hockey team looked like in 1980 when they lost to the U.S. hockey team. Have you ever seen the documentary about it? Have you ever watched the game? I've watched it probably hundreds of times. They thought they were unbeatable. They had won every Olympic gold medal, I think except for one up to that time, and they're playing a bunch of ragtag college students from Minnesota of all places. Terrible place. <laughs> Awful people. And they lose. And what the camera shows is the Soviet-Russia team lining up and just standing and staring in disbelief as the U.S. college students celebrate. That's what people are looking at Babylon. They're, they're staring in disbelief because they thought this could never happen, and now we're seeing the unthinkable happen. That's what's happening to Babylon the Great. Well, to understand this chapter properly, we need to be clear on what John means when he speaks of Babylon, the great city. Babylon is not a geographical city that you can point to on a map. As with so much of Revelation, we have to be careful of a a dangerous, rigid literalism, where we take everything as as a one-to-one correspondence between what John says and what we see in reality. In fact, most of what John does is he's describing spiritual realities using biblical symbols and imagery and metaphor. And Babylon is a perfect example of that. Babylon is a spiritual symbol for fallen humanity's prideful rebellion against God. Babylon stands as a spiritual symbol for fallen humanity's prideful rebellion against God. In other words, Babylon is the capital city of the country of worldliness. And the founding constitution of the country of worldliness states that all people are born with the inalienable right to live for themselves independent of what their maker and creator says. And all people should pursue life, liberty, and happiness by satisfying their cravings for pleasure, possessions, and power. That is the founding constitution of the capital city of the country of worldliness. And another way to think about this is in the background of John's description of Babylon are two Old Testament cities and two Old Testament stories. You have the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11, where humanity collectively comes together and says, let us make a name for ourselves. Instead of making much of God, they say, let us make much of us. And they they had this building project, which represents the fact that man in his sin would foolishly attempt to exalt himself above the very God of the heavens. And God humbles that. Well, then you also have the literal nation of Babylon from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel's day. And Babylon represented political persecution against the people of God. It represented kind of the immoral seduction of an alternative lifestyle to what God's people should live like. And it represented the religious corruption of a pagan nation that would say, not that God, but these gods. And all of that kind of makes Babylon then kind of stand as the people of God's arch nemesis. So if you're thinking in terms of superheroes, Babylon became a symbol for what the Joker was like to Batman, or or Lex Luthor is to Superman. Or if you're thinking literature, Babylon starts to represent kind of the the Mordor of Middle-earth. It's filled with all that is evil and wrong and unholy in this world. And so these these two Old Testament cities, Babel and Babylon, kind of come together to create this spiritual symbol of humanity's prideful rebellion against their Lord and their maker. So Babylon is the capital city of the country of worldliness. And what John does in Revelation 18 is he transports us to the day that the capital city of worldliness collapses and crumbles to the ground. And he shows us that so that we would resist the temptation to conform to its pattern of life. John shows us the ultimate end of what happens when you make this fallen world your home, when you conform to its lifestyle, 
so that we would all the more cherish the fact that we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of a greater city, which is to come. This is important because in every age, at every stage of civilization, Christians have had to recognize that there are strong cultural currents in this world that want to pull us in directions that are contrary to what it means to follow the Lord and to honor God. And we have to recognize what those currents are, where they're pulling us, where we're being influenced by them, so that we can be against the current, not swept up by it. Have you ever, kids, have you ever seen salmon swimming? You know what's unique about salmon is that they swim against the current, and they swim very fast. And they have to, as they swim against the current, not just swim against the current, but they have to jump over all these obstacles, like bears trying to bite them out of thin air. Christians are to be like salmon. We swim against the current. We jump over obstacles that would hinder us in following the Lord because we're traveling to a better city, one which is to come. So to encourage us to keep resisting the temptation to conform to Babylon's way of life, to make our home there, John shows us first the desolation of Babylon. So in verses one to three, John takes us to the future and he shows us the final outcome, what happens to the capital city of worldliness. Look at verse two specifically. Verse two, he says, this angel calls out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So what looks so grand, so glamorous right now, will in the end be empty and exposed as absolutely detestable and nothing. And then look at verses 21 to 24. So John kind of bookends this section by showing what Babylon will ultimately become. So verse 21 to 24, I'm not going to read it. I'll just summarize it. But he goes through this list of no mores. No more, no more, no more. And it's meant to be a contrast to what we're going to read in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, we see the heavenly Jerusalem. No more weeping, no more crying, no more tears, no more sin. That's the joy of the heavenly Jerusalem. But earthly Babylon, no more music, no more light, no more celebration of weddings, no more anything that they once found joy in because it's all vanished. All the things that made it glitz and shine and glamour will one day vanish because the Lord is gonna turn out the lights on that fallen city. So remember, one of John's purposes in writing Revelation is to help us see reality with the eyes of faith, to see it not as it appears to be, but as it truly is from an eternal and heavenly perspective. And so John's original audience was, was looking at Rome, which was the, their present-day embodiment of Babylon, kind of man's pride for rebellion against God. And to them, it looked like an indestructible city. It looked like the greatest empire that had ever been known to man. It shone with glamour and grandness that drew one in. I mean, think about it like we have on our back porch one of those, those lights that you plug in, and it's really bright and blue, and it buzzes, and you just hear bugs zap in it all night. That's what Rome looked like to them. It looked like this bright, beautiful light that's buzzing and glamorous, and then you go to it and you just get zapped. It's not good. Good for the bugs, not for you, okay? That's what they were seeing in Rome. And John says, don't look at it as it appears to be. Look at it as it is from a heavenly, eternal perspective. It is going to be empty and desolate in the end. So John is trying to break the enchantment of worldliness over human hearts by showing us what it will ultimately become. And so John describes Babylon in ways that remind me of one of those during and after pictures of some of those Olympic villages that were famous. So when a, when a host city gets to have the Olympics, they, they build tons of stadiums, tons of places. But then often what happens to those things after the Olympics 
is they become these uninhabited, uninhabited desolate stadiums. And so there, there are some pictures where you see the during of the Olympics and it's this bright, beautiful stadium filled with people and lights and shows and different things. And then it shows you 10 years later and there's you know, torn down bleachers. There's, uh, it's filled with murk and muddiness and it's just like the birds living there. That's what Babylon will look like in the end. The prideful city of man's rebellion against God will look like in the end. And why John does this is he's, he's seeking to wake us up from a spiritual drowsiness that can often come on us, to, to break us of the, the enchantment, or to use his word in Revelation 18, the sorcery of worldliness. Because sometimes we can, we can feel it in our souls. We can feel that, you know, I really need to fit in and follow the latest trends. I, the American dream is the ultimate dream, and, I, and that needs to be my dream. That's, I need to live for that and nothing else. Or we can think, you know, if, if I really want to be happy, I better keep up with that family or, or those people. I need to keep up with the Joneses. That's what it means to be really happy. We start to believe the lie that those with the most stuff, those with the best vacation experiences in life, they have the most fun. So that's what I'm going to live for. Now, some of those things are not wrong in and of themselves. But when that becomes the operating mode for how we live, we're, we're kind of buying into living in Babylon. And so this passage exposes us that, that living for that lifestyle, nothing more, Conforming to that pattern of life will only leave us empty and desolate in the end. Well, John goes on to encourage us to resist the temptation to conform to Babylon, to make our home there, by showing us the devastation of Babylon's most famous residence. So the people who had invested the most in Babylon, who were the, the stars of Babylon, who were the, the model citizens of Babylon, he, he kind of takes us, as it were, to the hillside outside of Babylon as it's smoking and burning in an ash heap of ruins and then he kind of interviews the three most famous citizens and lets us hear what they say about living for Babylon. So that's verses 9 to 19. There's three different groups of people, each kind of mourning and lamenting and weeping over what they're seeing. So verses 9 to 10 is the kings, the political leaders, those in power and positions of great authority. They're mourning at Babylon's collapse because it means the end of their idol of power and position. That They made a pact with the beast of Babylon and the, the prostitute of Babylon, that if, if we make an alliance with you, you'll give us positions of power and prominence in Babylon. And they got it, but in the end, they're left with nothing. So Revelation 13, Revelation 17 kind of showed us that many people in positions of power and authority kind of make an unholy alliance with the beast, the false prophet, all these people, because they're living for themselves. They're living to accumulate as much power and authority as they can from themselves and using it to advance themselves. And now with the collapse of Babylon, their crowns have vanished, their thrones are unoccupied and burning, and they have lost everything that they live for. And this reminds us that in this world, because of the temptation and presence of sin, there's always this, this allure to gain status or position or use whatever status and position you have to elevate yourself above others and to use others to serve yourself, to advance yourself. Kind of self-advancement, self-exaltation. Because the spirit of worldliness is about knowing that you are better than others, that you have a better position, a better place than others, and that others are under you rather than over you. And this is something that even Christians uh, are not um, immune to. For example, a pastor can take worldly pride in his position because he has a spiritual job, unlike all you other heathens out there. A parent can take worldly pride in their parenting because they can try and puff themselves up by kind of exalting the, the accomplishments and the advancement of their children, saying, look, look what I have done. Look at my status as a parent because look at what my kids have done. 
or someone who's successful in their career can take worldly pride in their success by taking all the credit as if they had accomplished it and that God had done nothing for them and not giving any credit where credit is due. We are not immune to the, the worldly kind of status of pride and place of position. And that Jesus very clearly exposed the pattern of Babylon to his disciples because you, there's, you can't eliminate positions of power and authority. They exist in this world. God has set them up, but they're to be used in ways that honor the Lord rather than honor oneself. So the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. James and John kind of got their mother together to, to go to Jesus and say, hey, would you please grant my sons to sit in your left and right? He's kind of, you know, a parent-teacher conference. And Jesus says this to the disciples as they're bickering over this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their rule over others and flaunt their authority over those under them. They exalt themselves. They, they use their positions to advance themselves. And what does he say to them? It shall not be so among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And Jesus didn't just say that. He went on to demonstrate that with his life. He was the one in the greatest position of power, in the greatest authority, who made the greatest demonstration of service by laying down his life for us. So when it comes to how one experiences and accumulates and utilizes power, there are two fundamental ways to think about how to utilize it. There's the kingdom of this world way, and there's the kingdom of Christ way. According to this world, power and authority exist so that you can gain as much of it as you can in order to utilize as much of it as you can to exalt yourself and advance yourself over others. But according to Jesus, power and authority exist so that when God gives it to you, when God gives it to you, you can utilize it to serve others as Christ has served us. That is the use of power and authority that should mark the kingdom of Christ. So that's group one, the kings. Now group two, the longest group in verse 11 to 17 is the merchants. And the merchants are gonna mourn at Babylon's collapse because it will mean the death of their idol of possessions and pleasure. It will mean the death of their idol of possessions and pleasure. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, as you know, John, as it were, is interviewing the merchants and why they're mourning, they give this long list, this long list of the inventory of all the stuff that they owned, all the stuff that they sold, all the stuff that gave them pleasure, all the things that they tried to accumulate to try and make themselves happy apart from God. And the very last item on the list is very shocking. It's meant to stand out and shock us. It says, and slaves, that is, human souls. What John is showing is that the worldly mindset, the mindset of the residents of Babylon is one in which you are so committed to pursuing your own pleasure and happiness that everything in the world is a prop and a means to your own happiness, even other people. Even other people, when you are pursuing your own ends, your own pleasure, apart from God, everything in the world becomes a possession and prop in your pursuit of your own happiness, even other people. And notice how verse 14 shows the dead end that this pursuit of worldly pleasure leads to. Look at verse 14. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed has left from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. What they find out in the end is that chasing a life in which you find your fulfillment in possessions and what they offer you, in the end, it's like chasing after the wind. You keep running after it, you keep running after it, and then just as you think you have it, it vanishes. It's gone. Solomon said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's chasing after the wind. All attempts, 
all endeavors in this world to find joy and happiness apart from God will be unsuccessful in the end. All attempts and endeavors to find joy apart from God and whatever we try to find it will be unsuccessful in the end. Why is that? Well, St. Augustine famously said, God has made us for himself and our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in thee. You can try and cram and fill so many things in that hole, as it were, in your heart. And you, you, can make, you can try to make square pegs fit in circular holes, but they will not fit. In the end, it will be unsuccessful because God has made us for himself. And our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. But now, it should be pointed out, if you look at the list in verse 12 and 13, with the exception of the very last thing on the list, everything that is listed in there is not sinful in and of itself. He's talking about animals and you know, scarlet clothing and different things like that. Those things are not sinful in and of themselves. So the issue isn't those things. The problem becomes when we accumulate things and utilize things without any reference to God, without any gratitude to God, or worse, as substitutes for God. The problem is not possessions. Possessions are not inherently sinful. They're not inherently good, and they're not inherently neutral. The question is always, what does your, what does your heart do with your possessions? Does it see them as gifts from God, or does it see them as possible substitutes for God? That's the danger. There's a world of difference between loving God and having possessions and owning possessions as your God. There's a world of difference between those two things. Well, finally, the third group that is interviewed by John and shows their weeping and mourning is the shipmasters and sailors. Verse 17 to 19. And they will weep at Babylon's fall because it will mean the end of their idol of prosperity and luxury. Look at verse 19 with me. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Now, why does he mention seafaring people, mariners? Well, in that day, if you owned a ship, you owned the means to export and import goods. You were the person who was making the most money, who had the best access to the best things in life. You were the richest and the most luxurious because that's how things worked at that time. So John uses them because in that day, they were kind of the iconic symbol of someone who has a wealthy and lavish lifestyle. Whereas in our day, you know, a modern example would be maybe the superstar athlete or the movie star. We would kind of see them as the iconic demonstration of they're living well, they're not hurting, they're in a different income bracket than me. So John's using these seafaring people to show the symbol of the lifestyle of prosperity and luxury. And these people are mourning because the bank of Babylon has collapsed. There's, there's no funds left in it. It's gone. All their wealth that they accumulated, all the comforts and ease that they had placed in that vault, they come to now and they find that it's totally empty. Their heart was there because that was their treasure and they come to find their treasure box in the end is ashes and dust. It's gone. Now again, we need to clarify. The Bible never condemns money as inherently sinful. Money like possessions is not inherently sinful, not inherently good, and it's not inherently neutral. It is all about how does your heart hold on to? How does your heart view what God has entrusted to you? So for the Christian, when it comes to money, the question is always, what are the thoughts and motives and intents of your heart when it comes to your money, your wealth? Do you love money? And thus, you're never content because you always need a little bit more. 
Or if your bank account turned up empty tomorrow, so I don't, maybe you're one of those, those banks. I forget what, there's a couple of them. I don't know their names. But all, let's say all your money is in one of those banks that closes. You wake up to read the news. It's empty. Could you say still, God is enough and he will take care of me? Or will you take the advice of Job's wife and say, curse God and die because your God has died with that bank? Do you view money as an opportunity to be wise and generous? Or do you view money as your ticket to security and self-sufficiency? How do you view your wealth? And the reason I think it's especially important for us to ask these questions, everyone should ask them, but especially us, because living where we live, it's hard not to bank at Babylon's first national bank where we live. We live in a very affluent society. Luxury is at our fingertips, if not in the palm of our hands, very easily. Not that those things are inherently sinful, but knowing our own hearts, we ought to know, I have to be careful. I have to guard against making the love of money my love. And so a Christian who lives in an affluent and luxurious area like we do, who lives so close to Babylon's first national bank, we cannot afford not to have a robust theology and understanding of how God calls us to view, steward, and be generous with our money. We cannot afford not to have a biblical view of how God calls us to view, steward, and be generous with our money, lest we make it our God. It's not money. That's the problem. It's the love of money, and we need to guard against the love of money. Well, in Revelation 17, John talks about misworldliness, kind of that, that seductive woman that would allure us away from faithfulness to Christ. And then in Revelation 18, he talks about Babylon, the capital city of worldliness, and that, that city that would offer us a nice house and a nice place to live away from the city of God. And he spends so much time seeking to expose it and warn us against it. Why? Why is John so content on warning us and exposing the danger of worldliness? I think the answer is this. John knows that it is not persecution or false teaching, as serious as those things are, which draws believers away from faithfulness to Christ so much as it is the love of the world, the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, and the desire to keep in step with the world that often is the thing that draws us more potently away from Christ than anything in this world. As one author said, the rock that most often makes shipwreck of someone's profession of faith in Christ is the rock of worldliness. Many a ship has ended up crashing on that rock. So how do we navigate around that rock? How do we resist conforming to the strong currents of this fallen world? Well, John gives us a brief answer to that question in verse four and five of chapter 18. Look there with me in verse four and five. So kind of right at the beginning, he inserts this this call. He says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So what John is saying is to avoid sharing in Babylon's desolation, to avoid standing there with the kings and the merchants and the seafarers mourning Babylon's loss and being devastated by it, Christians need to live distinctly from Babylon. Christians need to live distinct from Babylon. So when John says come out of her, he means live distinctly from her. Just as Babylon, that John speaks of here in Revelation 18, is not a literal city that you can point to on a map. So John's command to come out of Babylon, he's not telling you you need to find a new address. You need a new zip code. He's not saying you have to move away. 
Okay? So the free limbs of the kingdom, you, I think you need to hear that today. You don't need to move away. Just kidding. It's not wrong to move away. But that's not what John's saying. It said John's command for us to come out of Babylon is another way of saying Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians are to be in this world as salt and light while not conforming to this world so that we lose our saltiness and our brightness. We're to live in that tension of those two things. So what does that look like? Because I don't like Christianese sayings that are empty and, and meaningless, like in the world but not of the world. Okay? It sounds nice. You can put it on a bumper sticker. Please tell me what it means. Okay? So I'm going to tell you what it means so that you don't get frustrated like I do when someone just uses a saying. To be in the world but not of the world means that Christians must have a different standard that they live by than the world. To be in the world but not of the world means we have a different standard than the world. The guiding standards of worldliness are what's everybody else doing? What's in it for me? What's trending right now? What should I do so that others will think well of me? The world is easily persuaded by the argument that everybody thinks this way or everybody else is doing this. That is not an argument that should convince Christians. The Christian has a different standard. We must ask as best as we can, what does the word of God say about this? And what God says about it, as best as we can understand, that's what is to form our pattern of life. We must say, as the reformer Martin Luther did, when the opinions and the powers of the world were all against him, he said this, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. That is what is to guide us. It is the principles of the scriptures, not the principles of trends, popularity, being on the right side of history. So we live by a different standard. To live distinct from the world also, we must have a different motive than the world. So we have a different standard. We have a different motive. Worldliness is driven by the motivations of self-advancement, self-gratification, trying to fit in and gain the approval of others. But the Christian life is one in which we have experienced a spiritual Copernican revolution because we realize that the world does not revolve around us. In fact, it revolves around God. And when it does, things go so much better for us. And so we are no longer motivated by the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Instead, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do all to the glory of God. We are motivated by the fact that Christ has loved us and laid down his life for us. And so we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. And so our statement is, how can I glorify the one who loved me and laid down his life for me? That is our motive. Christ came at the cost of his own life to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into his own beloved kingdom of grace and glory and goodness. And so our motivation is now gratitude for grace. That's what drives the Christian in this world. So we have a different standard. We have a different motive. Also, Christians, to be distinct from the world, must have a different enjoyment than the world. I'm not saying necessarily enjoying different things, but a different kind of enjoyment. Our enjoyment should have a different flavor and feel than the world's enjoyment. Contrary to popular belief, the fruits of the Spirit are not dourness and frowning and dejectedness and curmudgeoniness, okay? Those are not fruits of the Spirit. You're a Christian, so let your face show it sometimes, okay? Christians ought to enjoy the gifts of this world more than anyone, okay? Christians ought to enjoy the gifts of this world more than... God did not fill this world with good gifts 
so that he could test you at every corner, whether you'd love them or him. That's not what he did. He filled this world with gifts so that you could love him in them and through them. That's how the Christian enjoys this world. So the world sees, worldly people see this world as a playground for their amusement. Okay, this world exists. It's my playground for my amusement. How happy can I be? The Christian sees this world as a theater of God's glory, where he has filled it with things that display how good he is, how beautiful he is, how creative he is, how generous he is. And our enjoyment should be different and better than the enjoyment of worldliness because our calling is to enjoy God in everything and enjoy everything in God. I mean, we, we never disconnect the gifts of God from the one who gave them. We always wanna trace the sunbeam back to the sun when we're enjoying it. So the beauty of a bright summer day with a calm ocean, green flag day, my favorite days, is a day to be refreshed in by a wonderful gift of God. And when we enjoy that day, we should go thank him for it. The sensation that your taste buds feel when you bite into a well-cooked and well-seasoned chicken drumstick that Stephen Weiss makes for you is a gift from God that should be enjoyed thoroughly. And we should thank God for it thoroughly. And those are good gifts, Stephen. I I thank the Lord for you. Our enjoyment of bluebell ice cream or Publix sour gummy worms is a gift from God where he says, I gave you 5,000 to 10,000 taste buds so that you could know bluebell is a gift from the Lord, okay? Our enjoyment should be different than the world's because instead of making our pursuit of enjoyment our God, we take every enjoyment that we receive as a gift from God and respond in gratitude and praise to God. That's where our enjoyment should be different. And we also know the secret of moderation versus excess. We know that a gift becomes something dangerous when we indulge ourselves in it, when we think we have to have so much of it that we actually become intoxicated by it and lose out on the true joy that was it was for. It's another thing. Finally, to live distinct from the world, we must have a different hope than the world. So we have a different standard, we have a different motive, we have a different enjoyment, we also have a different hope than the world. The slogan and motto that drives worldliness is properly summed up by the 1971 Slitch Beer campaign. You only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can. Which is odd because it's, it's, it's terrible beer, really, but a great slogan, okay? <laughs> but it was really getting at something. You, everyone, you know, kinda, it was the YOLO before it was popular with, with the kids on the street these days. You only go around once in life, so guess what? How should you live? Grab life with all the enjoyment you can. Get it all now, because this is all you get. In other words, this is it. Enjoy it while you can, as much as you can. There is nothing more important to you than being happy right here and right now. That's what the world says. But as Christians, we have learned the secret of contentment. We have learned the secret of delayed gratification. We have learned that there is a city, which is to come, whose designer and builder is God. And the best things on this earth are but faint whispers and echoes of that world. If, If we think that the joys we experience in this world are the thing themselves rather than an echo of the thing itself, we'll be disappointed and brokenhearted in the end. But as C.S. Lewis said, when we understand that they're whispers and echoes of our true heavenly home, we'll realize that it is the scent of a flower we have not yet seen. It is the, the sound of a piece of music that we have not yet heard, and it's news from a far off country that we have not yet visited. That's why God fills this world with gifts. And so Christians, remember this. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasting pomp and show, solid joys 
and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. That's our hope. Let's pray.